Hello, this is Mr. Galley from GCSE English Revision Pod with a quick message for you. If you want even more English Revision Pod in your ears, you can now subscribe to our premium service, GCSE English Revision Pod Plus, where for the price of just over £2 a month, on top of all the amazing free episodes, which will continue to be free and there for you to use, you can also get a selection of amazing bonus episodes on things like Macbeth, A Christmas Carol, Romeo and Juliet, and all your favourite topics covered in the depth and detail that you are used to. If you are interested in getting even more GCSE English Revision Pod, all you've got to do is click the link at the top of this episode description, where you can subscribe to GCSE. English Revision Pod Plus. Hello and welcome to the second edition of Revision Pod with myself, Mr. Galley. And Mr. Forster. How are you doing today, sir? I'm very good, thank you. That's fantastic. Yeah, I'm great, thank you. I've, I've, I've had a great day. A much better day, perhaps, than our students will be having when they find out what the subject of today's podcast is. Correct. We are doing what is perhaps the hardest of the essays that we could imagine and could appear on Roman Juliet uh, this summer. And we thought that's question four in our pack. A question on how Shakespeare presents Mercutio in Fantastic. We should probably say for people joining us in the second edition of the podcast that if you look on the bio of the podcast, you can in fact download the question pack that we are working with so that you can follow along with the exact extracts that we are doing. So yeah, last week I, f- I feel like we started off with the kind of the real bread and butter Romeo and Juliet essay. I feel like we started off with the, the kind of classic essay that you would hope comes up if you're a GCSE student. And this week, I guess we're going to the, the opposite end of that scale. Yeah, I think this is the question that lots of people find, would find quite challenging. So the extract, if we look at the question, um, the extract is taken from Act 1, Scene 4 of Roman Juliet. And it is the famous Queen Mab speech that terrifies uh, mm. many Year 11 pupils. And the question is, starting with this exchange, explore how Shakespeare presents Mercutio in Romeo and Juliet. Yes, And now I know what you're imagining. I remember before uh, the English literature exam last year being stood on the field outside our sports hall, the number of students that came up to me and said, sir, as as long as it's not Queen Mab, I'm okay. You know, as long as it's not Mab, I think I can do this exam. And I think actually there's once you get past it, there's actually a huge amount to say, sir, about this. And there actually is a great amount you can do with it once you get past the slightly weird nature of the speech itself. Definitely. I mean, let's start with thinking about Mercutio in the whole play. Right. Because I think he's an incredibly important character because the entire play seems to turn on his semi-accidental stabbing. Before this, Mercutio, his language is defined by this bawdy humour. He dominates Romeo's young male world. He's higher in class. He's a cousin to the prince. He's geographically mobile. He's neither Montague nor Capulet. Mm. And um, it's only at his death when we move away from this world of comedy into the world of tragedy. some of our listeners may be thinking, well, I've, I've read this far into the play. I've not yet laughed. What does uh, Mr. Forster mean that we're transferring from comedy to tragedy? Well, in, in the Elizabethan era, comedy was a genre of play that ends with a happy ending, okay. uh, with a marriage specifically. Mm. And certainly the opening acts of Roman Juliet seem to be moving in that direction. Right. Um, it is only really with Mercutio's death. And Mercutio, you could even argue that he seems like the clown character from Shakespeare's comedies. This is the character who's, who, whose only existence is really to say crude, strange mm. and funny things because yeah. that, that is Mercutio in the first few acts of the play and when the clown dies the world of comedy dies and we're only we're left waiting for tragedy so actually if this were to come up in the exam rather than feeling a blind panic our students should perhaps be thinking oh well I've been given the pivotal moment of the play of course I can write about this this is the moment when the whole 
sort of plot revolves around this one this one character. Yeah, and certainly we're definitely going to be talking about Act 3, Scene 1 later on in this essay. Of course, because the extract that we've got is not actually Mercutio's death, of course. This is his famous speech that he gives to Romeo. Whenabouts in the play does he deliver this speech to Romeo? So, Act 1, Scene 4 takes place just before the Night Mask. So, Romeo and his friends, they're on the way to the Capula party. Romeo wants, at this point, to meet Rosaline, the, um, Juliet's um, cousin, who we never actually see in the play, but who Romeo is in love with at the start mm. of the play. But their arrival at this party is delayed by initially some masculine banter as, the, as Romeo's, friends, uh, Romeo, Romeo's friends make fun of him. Uh, but then Makisha gives this long and elusive speech. Right. Um, I think we're, what's kind of interesting about that is that we, as we talked about last week, we've already had this world of meaninglessness that we discussed at length. You know, this idea that we saw that initial fight between Capulet and Montague. We saw Romeo talking endlessly in a way that didn't really mean anything. And in a way, this speech here, the Queen Mab speech, when, when students say, oh, it doesn't mean anything, I don't know what it means, in a sense, that is an argument that they can use and get straight into, correct? Um, Romeo makes that point himself. If you look at the end of the extract, when, when Mercutio is given this long, disturbing, nightmarish speech, Romeo says, peace, peace, Mercutio, peace. Thou talkst of nothing. Mm. And we can certainly start with the point that actually this speech seems meaningless. It seems the embodiment of this meaningless social world that exists before Romeo meets Juliet. Yeah, that's a fantastic way of looking at it. So students are thinking of it and they're going, okay, so we've got this part where just before the, the key moment between the lovers happens, we've got this great long monologue from Mercutio. But what he talks about in this speech seems so alien, seems so strange. I'm wondering if I'm a student I'm sitting there and I'm thinking well how do I actually relate the the odd images that he's creating and the things that he's saying to his character well I think we need to start with the, the really simple point that who is Queen Mab in the speech right, so Queen, she? she's described as the midwife of the fairy so a midwife is someone who obviously brings babies into the world um, but she doesn't seem to bring babies into the world instead what she brings is she brings dreams mm. to people so she is a figure who's seemingly out of the world of fairy tales. And, and initially we might think, therefore, that she's this quite positive character. But let's look at the kind of dreams that she makes people dream. Um, according to Mercutio, Queen Mab makes fickle courtiers dream of curtsying to the queen. Um, she makes greedy lawyers dream not of justice, but of the fees they will earn from their clients. Um, she makes ladies dream of kisses. Priests dream not of God, but of the pigs their parishioners might buy them. So I think there's an awful lot of quotations there that could be summed up relatively simply, which is that my understanding of it is essentially dreams give you what you want. They don't have any deeper significance. They don't show you the future. They don't show you the path your life should take. But instead, they show you simply what you selfishly desire. And, and even more important than that, that his, his view of what we really want is, as you said, selfish. Right. He, is, he is very cynical in his worldview. He thinks that people are ultimately quite selfish and think only of themselves. Which is, I suppose, the antithesis of love, because some people would say that the definition of love, even in that era... And perhaps why Romeo and Juliet's love is quite transgressive is because their form of love seems to be that they would give for each other and sacrifice for each other. And if you look at what Mercutio says in this speech, he doesn't seem to believe that people have that inherent good in them. He doesn't seem to believe in anything like love, anything where you would sacrifice yourself for another. Well, I mean, we see that even he says lovers dream not of the woman that they love, but of an abstract notion of love itself, suggesting their feelings are ultimately centred on themselves. Mm. And that being in love is not to do with loving an individual, um, as you said, kind of that selfless love, it's to do with just 
wanting to, to, to have a feeling. Almost addicted to the, the chemical sensations of love rather than wanting the deeper spiritual connection of love. Definitely. And I think the other thing to note here is that the, the speech becomes increasingly nightmarish. Right, that is fascinating, with... isn't it? The way it degenerates and kind of collapses yeah. in on itself as it goes on. Yeah, there's a lovely way of putting it. Because it starts with this almost childlike image of this magnified vegetable and insect life that's... And yet it becomes increasingly disturbing. Right. So what begins with this kind of diminutive charm becomes a description of eviscerated, ripped-up insect bodies, wagon, wagon spokes made of spider's legs, cover wing, made of the wings of grasshoppers, a whip made out of cricket's bone. Mm. Obviously, Shakespeare didn't pass his GCC biology because crickets don't have bones, they have exoskeletons. But, but the, of point, course. the point is, though, mm. that the, even, queen, even the, the carriage in which Queen Mab carries is violent and, dis, and, and disturbing. That's incredible, isn't it? And I, I suppose... A student writing about it might say that even from the early part of the speech where there's still the sense that Mercutio is in control, his dream, in inverted commas, has a nightmarish element to it. Would you go with that? Definitely. And I think if we look at the final images that he has in the speech as well, he ends with the soldiers dreaming of cutting foreign throats. And this description of Queen Mab um, pressing upon the the chests of of unconscious sleeping women to make them learn the pains of childbirth. These are quite disturbing images to to end a speech given by this seemingly fairytale character. Mm. And it's fascinating the way it's often portrayed in film and theatre versions is that Mercutio is actually quite vulnerable by the end of the speech. That this, this joker who we see at the beginning, this man who's able to, to weave his words, to weave his images in such a crafty way in order to create humour, in order to win an audience to his cause, he almost is the vulnerable victim of dreams come the end of the speech. Would you go with that? Yeah, and I think that actually, um, not only that, that there's this whole sense of him, his cynical worldview being one that possibly depresses even him. Yeah, um, <laughs> which is uh, which is fascinating, really, because you know he he like you say he's this incredibly sort of clownish character who comes to have this incredibly important role, and I think students writing about it, they really need to perhaps you know as you say there's so much imagery but if we were to boil it down into perhaps the three things that you'd want to include what would you perhaps what would you perhaps say the three things students would absolutely want in there would be well i think the first point would be the the structural point about how this is the the final moment of this meaningless masculine world that exists before romeo meets juliet the second is that queen mab is this figure who seems out of a fairy tale and yet the dreams she brings sleepers are of the most cynical kind. She brings out the worst in people. Mm. So Mercutio is a pessimist, right? Students are making the argument that as a foil to Romeo, as a foil to this man who seems to believe in love, we see his best friend who essentially believes in very little and values love as one of those things that people waste their time on. Definitely. And even the final image of the speech to finish up to looking at this extract, mm-hmm. um, uh, Mercutio ends with this image of, of, of women be learning how to bear a child through Queen Mab pressing on them in sleep paralysis, that, that feeling when you wake up and can't move. Mm-hmm. And this is quite a disturbing image because, of course, in 14th century Verona and indeed in 16th century London, one in three women would have died in their childbearing years. Oh, really? Therefore, actually, to sit, and to think about the logical extension of Roman Juliet's relationship if they were to have got married then Juliet presumably would have had children this is what this is the fate that might have awaited them even if um, even if they'd survived so there's a there's a huge sense of darkness that comes through across the whole thing so a topic sentence for that paragraph then perhaps would be something along the lines of um from the starting of the extract Shakespeare presents Mercutio as an incredible pessimist who 
uh, enforces this idea that life in Verona is quite meaningless or something like that. Yeah, perfect. And then there's lots of evidence we just talked about that can back that, that up. That they could work into that. Yeah, I think that, I think that would work fantastically well. So, as ever in the pod, we will now move on to the rest of the play. Our students have sat down. They've got over the initial heart attack they almost suffered when they saw what the question was. They've reminded themselves that actually Mercutio is an incredibly important character and the Queen Mab speech is, contrary to popular opinion, a brilliant part of the play. They now, of course, then need to move on to the rest of the play. So where, where are you directing your vision at this point? Well, I think we can pick up on a point we've already made, which is Mercutio is a foil to Romeo. Um, that is a, a, someone who, a character deliberately set up to contrast with him. Mm-hmm. So unlike Romeo who's defined by love he's defined by his bawdy humour and more precisely his sexualised view of the world right he's quite he's quite crude at points in the play isn't he exceptionally crude um, for example, take Act 2, Scene 1, as Romeo slips away from his friends to, mm. to go and see Juliet in the famous balcony scene. Mercutio uses an extended metaphor comparing him to a conjurer, suggesting that he will use magic to bring back his friend. He says, yes. I conjure thee by Rosaline's bright eyes, by her fine forehead and her scarlet lip, by her fine foot, straight leg and quivering thigh, and the demoncies that they're adjacent lie. And what does he mean by that, Mr. Forster? I mean, this is some pretty crude stuff. So... I mean, first of all, he's drawing upon the Petrarchan tradition of the blazon. Okay. So Petrarch was a famous Italian poet, and the blazon in his poetry is where you define your woman by listing her favourable characteristics. So I'd say, Mr. Gallo, you have lovely eyes, you have a lovely beard, and lovely curly hair. Go on. But what, what Mercutio does here is he makes it explicitly sexual. Right. So he talks about her quivering thigh and the demonstrations that they're adjacent like. So, of course, what's adjacent to your quivering thigh um, is, of course, your sexual organs. So he is... He is being quite crude here in terms of what he thinks Romeo is after. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because you get that metaphorical wall as well as the literal wall that Romeo has jumped over at that point. Because what that wall means to me is not only has he over overturned it with Cupid's wings in order to reach Juliet, but he's also put a wall between himself and Mercutio. And I think what you see at this point is the, this huge misunderstanding by Mercutio of what his friend actually wants. So I think the crucial thing to write about here is the structural technique of dramatic Mm. irony. Right. Mercutio thinks Romeo is running off to see Rosaline and of course he is not. He's moved on. He is now with Juliet and of course the tragic thing of their friendship is Mercutio never finds out about Juliet. He dies before he could find the truth. Yes. Um, But before we get too serious there's a few more crude metaphors here. Mm. Um, He talks about Rosaline's magic circle um, and he talks and he, uh, he talks about the medlar fruit, which is a small brown skinned and, and round fruit with a cleft like an apricot and a deep cup shaped depression at the stem end, mm. and the slang for the, 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 the medlar fruit in the Renaissance period, the Elizabethan era, was in fact an open arse. Mm. So this is a very crude metaphor to suggest, suggest her sexual readiness. It's a, it's a million miles away from what Romeo is actually after at that point in time, isn't it? And it shows that for for Mercutio, that there is purely, not only, not only is he not interested in love, and not only is he only interested in sex, but it's almost quite an aggressive, vicious view on sex, almost as if he sort of attacks things sexually. Yeah, he, see, he seems to define women as sexual objects, which, right. could, of course, could not be more different from Romeo by the end of the play. Mm. Which is a very, yeah, which is a very interesting way of looking at the way they go in their, in their two different ways in that sense. Would you, as part of that paragraph, would you briefly bring in the nurse? Yeah, so, I mean, we could talk about how even when the nurse appears, he, 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 he shouts out, aboard, aboard, as if mm. Romeo is going off to see prostitutes with a nurse. So, 
he he doesn't take anything seriously mm. and therefore he misses perhaps what's in front of him. And I think students can show their, their wider knowledge of the play as well by saying that she is perhaps the, uh, another character who shares that perception of the world if they wanted to support this idea of characters who purely oh, see the world in a, in a sexual way. So, okay, great. If I, can, uh, if I can sort of map out what we've got then, we've seen the extract, we've written our nice paragraph about the Queen Mab speech and explored the kind of emptiness of it all, the way that love doesn't really mean anything. We've then moved on to our second paragraph and sort of said, well, if, if there is a role for love in Mercutio's life, it's entirely yeah. as sex. Exactly. It's all about sex. And it's about this quite rude, quite bawdy, quite uh, graphic depiction of sex. So we now need one more paragraph to round off the essay, finish it off. Where are you taking me next? Well, I think perhaps the most important scene, I would argue, in the entire play is Act 3, Scene 1, Mercutio's death. You could see this scene almost as the turning point at which around the whole play revolves. Because if you see Mercutio as a clown figure straight out of Shakespeare's world of comedy, his death, therefore, functions as a signal of this movement from, as I said at the beginning, the world of comedy to the world of tragedy. Mm. It, it pivots around Romeo's sword, you might say. Yeah, precisely. Or, or it pivots around Romeo's refusal to fight. Because this is the first moment in the play when we see Mercutio becomes serious. Yeah. Speaking in, in a prose that distinguishes him from the blank verse of the two feuding families, he sees Romeo's refusal to fight Tybalt as dishonourable. Right. If Just to clarify that point then, what do you mean exactly about the difference between the prose and the blank verse? So prose is speaking in an ordinary way that we might talk. Um, verse is, is how Shakespeare writes in iambic pentameter when lines um, have five beats in a line, so it looks more like poetry. Right. And so it's a really simple point here, is that Mercutio's, the form in which he's speaking, speaking in prose, is different from the other characters on stage. Okay. Something which shows that he is fundamentally different. He's not part of this feud. So even to an illiterate audience back in the Shakespearean times, he would have sounded different to how other characters were speaking. Very he would have different. Been, been distinct on stage at that moment in time. Now, I love the quote at that point where he talks about Romeo's um, refusal to fight as dishonourable and vile in its submission. Is that almost an oxymoron, vile submission, or is that too strong? What do you mean by that? Well, in the sense that, like, can submission be vile? You know, submission typically... Well, it can in the masculine world of 14th century Verona. I suppose it can, yeah, of course. I think it perhaps shows the fundamental difference between them. Romeo talks of loving Tybalt... Um, Mercutio talks of this as vile submission. Do you feel a bit sorry for Mercutio at this point in time? I sometimes think, you know, he's, he's seen his best friend jump over a wall and leave him on his own to chase after a girl. So Romeo's um, massively ignored the mates before dates rule already. Then the next day, he's willing to back him up in a fight as, uh, as a good Veronan mate should. And there's Romeo saying that he loves... Tybalt's name as much as his own, refusing to fight. Do you have, a, do you have sympathy for why Mercutio felt the need to jump into the fray? Yeah, and, and particularly, I think I have most sympathy for him in, in his final moments of his death, because mm. the, the, it takes death to make Mercutio serious. He's punning almost until he dies. He says, to, um, ask me tomorrow, you shall find me a grave yeah. man. Um, and then his dying breath, though, is perhaps the most powerful words. He says, a plague on both your houses. Mm. So his final words are to curse his friends. And, and, and an AO3 point, plague for 16th century audiences would have been an incredibly emotive metaphor because right. plague was a very real threat. They suffered them plagues. Yeah, across, across Europe, this is responsible for the deaths of, of, of th- hundreds of thousands of people. Yeah, so he's not mincing his words at that point Definitely in time. Not. And also he does something that I think Romeo and Juliet both do, which is when he actually feels the realism of death, he uses quite 
brutal imagery and he talks about being worms meat. And for Mercutio, like Romeo and Juliet later in the play, there's no idealised version of death. There's no description of death as the big sleep or going off into the light or anything euphemistic. Instead, he sees the brutality of what's lying ahead of him. These violent delights of violent ends. Right, exactly. As... But Sorry. The other thing I was going to say about this scene is, of course, we've got to consider the effect of Mercutio's death on Romeo. Um, Romeo, for the first time, as we mentioned last week, after Mercutio dies, he sees to actually blame Juliet. He says that her beauty hath made him effeminate and softened valor's steel. Right. There's the suggestion in that metaphor that he has been weakened by love, and he acknowledges that he perhaps should have been more loyal to his friend. And this is the moment when he kills Tybalt. This is the moment that leads to his exile. This is perhaps the, the beginning of the play moving towards tragedy. Yes, and going back, which goes back nicely to your first point that you opened the podcast up with, which is this um, idea of it being such a key moment revolving around Mercutio. And I think any good Mercutio essay would have to, would have to feature that. So... Rounding up then, this whole we're not going to do a stretch and challenge section this podcast because essentially we've been stretching and challenging enough. Yes, I think any essay about Mercutio is naturally going to take students into that higher level of writing. So rather than provide that particular part, we've we've kind of tried to focus the whole thing on that point. One final thing to say, I suppose, is that in terms of crossover to other essays, there are lots of stuff you could say about Mercutio would also go into an essay about masculinity. Definitely, or indeed about his friendship with Romeo. If there's an essay on masculinity or friendship, any of these points would probably slot in quite nicely. Agreed. Well, I think, hopefully, our students are feeling slightly less terrified about this option possibly coming up. I hope they're excited. If not, we've done a terrible job. But, uh, yeah, I would, I would personally not be too worried if this came up. I think students can do a wonderful job with this and I think getting over the fear of it is a huge part towards that. Remember, you can download the question pack in the bio and so you can work along with us and thank you very much for being here, sir. Goodbye. Have a nice week. We'll see you next time on Revision Pod.